Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Today for Spirit in Action, we welcome back Melanie Joy, who I had the pleasure of interviewing about two years ago about what was her most recent book at that point called Powerarchy. Actually, one of only six books I believe she's written. But way back in 2011, she first wrote, and today we'll be talking to Melanie about the new edition of Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows, An Introduction to Carnism her groundbreaking and thought-provoking book about the psychology that buttresses the dysfunctional, arbitrary, and unhealthy way that people decide which animals we eat and which we keep as pets. And the questions are even bigger, explored in her other books about empathy, connection, and relationship. We've got production assistance from Andrew Jansen on today's show, and remember, listen And remember to listen to the full, uncut-for-broadcast version of the interview and the bonus excerpts on northernspiritradio.org. Melanie Joy lives in Germany these years, but we have the good fortune to join her via Zoom while she is visiting back home in the USA. Melanie, it's an absolute joy to have you here. I feel like I'm being redundant by saying that, but it's a joy to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and a joy to be back (laughs) talking to you again. You know, what's really amazing is I'm speaking to you today and tomorrow I'm speaking to a woman whose first name is Joy. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) It's my week for Joy. It really is a pleasure to have you here and to actually finally read the book because when I talked to you a couple years ago when I had you on Spirit in Action, I hadn't yet read this book. But then there's a very dear friend of mine who is vegan, who when I said, I'm going to interview this person, she about went crazy because I think you were very influential in her movement in that direction. That's nice to hear. Thank you. Well, I think you must hear that back from so many people, how much you change our lives by erasing some of the programming, opening the eyes to what's really happening. Do you get that kind of feedback? Well, I have an organization beyond carnism. And so I have a team of people working, you know, we're a nonprofit, a charity organization. And so we do get that feedback as a team that, you know, some of our materials have been helpful in in helping people think differently about this issue and related issues of working to transform oppression and personal transformation. Now, you're right at this moment near Boston in the U.S., but you live in Germany. Relationships will do that to you, won't they? (laughs) (laughs) They'll do all sorts of things to you. (laughs) And is Beyond Carnism applicable to the U.S., to Germany, to many different countries? Yeah, we're a U.S.-based organization, but we operate internationally. Our materials are often translated into multiple languages. But our mission is to expose and transform carnism, which we'll talk about, the invisible belief system that conditions people to eat certain animals globally. On a broader level, our, our meta mission is really to help create a more relational world for all beings. Define that, relational world. What does that mean? Because a lot of people, I don't think about that stuff. 
Well, we're going to, you know, I know we'll be talking about carnism today and eating animals, the psychology of eating animals. And that's, you know, based on my book, Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs and Wear Cows. My more recent work that actually evolved from this over the years is, is looking at how we relate is so foundational to the kind of world we end up creating. If you look at some of the most pressing problems in our personal lives, of course, but also in our world, you know, war, poverty, racism, patriarchy animal exploitation, climate change, political polarization, you can see that these problems all share a common denominator. And that common denominator is relational dysfunction. It's dysfunctional ways of relating between social groups, between individual humans, between humans and non-human animals, between humans and the environments, you know, and we're also even relating to ourselves. And so Building relational literacy, which is the understanding of an ability to practice healthy ways of relating, is really fundamental to helping transform all of these problems. Oppression, you know, as I, I wrote about, also oppression is a, it's a relational phenomenon. It reflects relational dysfunction. So if we really want to create a healthier world where people relate to each other and to other animals and beyond in a healthy way, and that's what I mean by relational we need to change the way we relate. It's not enough to just ask who is oppressing whom and to work to transform one form of oppression or violence or abuse at a time. We really need to look at how and why we oppress and abuse in the first place and really change the way we relate. So what we'll be talking about today is our relationship with certain animals, which is farmed animals, the animals we've learned to classify as edible and carnism, as I'll discuss this belief system that conditions us to eat certain animals is, you know, what I call a non-relational system. It's a system that conditions us to not be relational, to relate to these particular types of individuals in a way that causes harm to them and also to ourselves. The example that you start off in maybe your first chapter, maybe it's the second chapter, you're at an elegant dinner party, right? Would you relay that? Because I think it is so striking. It helped to me right from the beginning say, okay, let's practice reframing because we so often blind ourselves and it's part of our defense mechanisms. Yeah. So I talk about saying, imagine that, you know, you're sitting at a dinner party and you're eating a delicious beef stew and you ask the host for the recipe and the host replies, well, the secret is in the meat. You need to use three pounds of well-marinated golden retriever. Now, chances are your experience of the meat dramatically change, even though nothing about the meat itself actually changed. Its texture is the same, its flavor is the same, but what changed is your perceptions of the meat. Probably what happened is what you had just seen as food, you now see as a dead animal. What you had just felt was delicious, you now feel is disgusting. And rather than continue eating, you want to throw the stew out and probably take to the streets and protest against the slaughter of these beings. Our perceptions construct, they drive our feelings and our feelings drive our behaviors and then our behaviors reinforce our perceptions. So we don't think of golden retrievers. We don't perceive golden retrievers as edible, but we do perceive cows as edible. And because of this, we're disconnected from our emotion, our natural empathy for cows. And because of that, we eat cows. And because we eat cows, we reinforce the belief that cows are meant to be eaten and our perception of cows as edible and their flesh as food rather than as flesh. 
Absolutely. I think it's such a wonderful, jarring example to help people to step to different grounds. As I've told you before, I've been a vegetarian since 76. In 1977, I went to Africa, Togo, West Africa, where I was a Peace Corps volunteer. They had the hardest time understanding why anybody would choose to be vegetarian. But I eventually came up with a description that worked. Because for them, being able to have even a little tiny piece of meat was a great privilege. And so the idea that I would voluntarily not eat any is crazy. In the southern part of Togo, the tribes that are there have dogs as pets, but they view cats as food. And in the north, it's switched around, where they have cats as pets, but dogs are food. Mm -hmm. And about 10% of the population of Togo at that time was Muslim. So, of course, they don't eat pigs. And this, I just said, see, they don't eat cats, they don't eat dogs, they don't eat pigs. I'm part of the super religion. I don't eat any of it. And then they go, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. There's a mind shift there that became, it was comprehensible to them. When I tried to explain compassion for animals or I tried to explain environmental footprint or anything, none of that worked. So when you share this with people, is there one time out of 10 where people say, that's ridiculous, I'm leaving? Yeah, well, that's a, it's a great question. And you actually bring up a couple of, I think, really important points that I'll, I'll speak to. So, you know, one is that carnism is a global phenomenon. In meat eating cultures around the world, people learn to classify, usually it's a tiny handful of animals as edible, and all the rest we classify as inedible. Members of all cultures tend to perceive their own choices to be rational and the choices of other cultures to be irrational and disgusting and often even offensive. And so it's even though the type of species consumed changes from culture to culture, the way people relate to edible and inedible species remains consistent. Some animals are for eating, some animals are for not eating, some are delicious and some are disgusting, so on and so forth. In answer to your question that you raised, do I ever hear from people, oh, you know, this is ridiculous? Yes, sometimes. And that is because carnism, the system that we'll be talking about, is constructed in such a way to maintain itself, to keep itself alive. This system runs counter to core human values. You know, most people would never willingly support intensive, extensive, and completely unnecessary violence to billions and billions of other sentient beings. Most people would would be profoundly offended if they really were connected with what's going on in the world. If they really were aware of the fact that what can only be called a global atrocity is taking place every second of every day. Systems like carnism, in order to keep themselves intact, since they run counter to core human values, need to use a set of psychological defense mechanisms. And these defense mechanisms distort our perceptions and disconnect us from our natural empathy from those individuals we've learned to classify as edible so that we act against our values and also our own interests and the interests of others without realizing what we're doing. We internalize these defenses. So very often people who are confronted with a vegan, for instance, or basically carnism conditions us to resist any information that would help us get out of the carnistic box we don't even realize we're in. So very often people, when they're confronted with a vegan or information about veganism can start out feeling defensive and say, you know, this is what I heard when I first became vegan. Don't tell me that you'll ruin my meal. Or they'd call me a crazy vegan hippie propagandist. And when I was simply trying to share 
objective information that I was learning about what was happening in the world with people, my friends and family who were very progressive and social justice oriented, and some of whom were deeply spiritual and very committed to practicing compassion, this wall of defensiveness would go up. And that's what happens when, you know, and and we can impact this, you know, as we talk, but that's what happens with carnism and systems like carnism, they keep themselves alive by conditioning us to feel defensive and to basically support something that we would otherwise be actively challenging. Something so heinous as the mass slaughter. I think the number you mentioned, 11 billion farmed animals slaughtered yearly in the United States. 11 billion. Yeah. And just to put that into perspective, globally, in just one day, more farmed animals are slaughtered than the total number of people killed in all wars throughout human history. Wow. So I think it probably is necessary for our listeners to explain, unless they've already read why we love dogs, eat pigs, and wear cows, I think it's necessary to explain why we need this word carnism. Absolutely. Let me tell you a little bit about how it emerged for me and and contextualize it a little bit, how the awareness of this word emerged for me. Like many people, I grew up with a dog who I loved like a family member. And I also grew up eating animals quite regularly. Over the course of many years and many meals, I just never thought about how I could pet my dog with one hand while I ate a pork chop with the other. You know, a pork chop that had once been an individual who was at least as intelligent and sentient as my dog. I just didn't connect the dots. Until one day in 1989, when I was 23, I ate a contaminated hamburger and wound up on intravenous antibiotics in the hospital. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was really sick. And I stopped eating meat after that. And it wasn't because I, you know, maybe unconsciously, I don't know, but I stopped eating meat simply because, you know, when you get really sick, you just don't ever want to eat the last thing you ate. (laughs) That was the motivator. I was just disgusted, which then prompted me the stopping of eating meat. I kind of became a vegetarian by accident. It prompted me to, you know, have to learn about how to cook for myself. I had to learn about vegetarianism. In the process of learning about vegetarianism, I stumbled upon information about animal agriculture and what I learned shocked and horrified me. I could not believe the extent of the violence. I could not believe the impact on the environment. And that was back in the 80s before we knew what we know today. And I was also, of course, concerned about the public health issues and and the damage being done to my own body and other people's bodies from consuming these products. But what shocked me in some ways even more was that nobody I talked to was willing to hear what I had to say. This is where this kind of like, you know, crazy vegan hippie, I became vegan shortly after, you know, I I learned about this and crazy vegan hippie propagandist and these defenses (laughs) would come up. And so that motivated me. I became really curious as to how rational, compassionate people like myself could just stop thinking and feeling when it came to this issue of eating animals. And so I studied the psychology of violence and nonviolence more broadly, and specifically wrote my doctoral dissertation on the psychology of eating animals. And this was what led me to identify carnism, which is the invisible belief system that conditions us to eat certain animals. And, you know, people tend to assume that only vegans and vegetarians follow a belief system. But the only reason we might eat pigs, but not dogs, for example, is because we do follow a belief system when it comes to eating animals. When eating animals is not a necessity for survival, then it's a choice. And choices always stem from beliefs. 
But no, carnism is, I'll just tell you briefly, two points about carnism that are really important to be aware of. One is that carnism is a, is a dominant system. That means it's so widespread that its tenets are woven through the very structure of society to shape norms, laws, beliefs, behaviors, and so forth. So when we study nutrition, for example, we're actually studying carnistic nutrition. And carnism is a system of violence. It is organized around violence. It's a system of oppression. It's structured like other oppressive systems like patriarchy, classism, and racism, and so on. And for this reason, carnism needs to use these psychological defense mechanisms to keep itself alive because it does run counter to what most people would be willing to support. And therefore, we do things like we eat beef as opposed to eating cows. We're distancing. And that's one of the psychological techniques that one uses. Were you a psychologist before you became a vegetarian vegan? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Oops, the wrong analogy. <laughs> the veganism came first. Okay. The psychology came later. And that was, you know, the veganism motivated me to learn about the psychology. It was one of the things that really prompted me to be so curious about how so many of us, myself included, for so much of my life, could live with such profound inconsistencies in our attitudes and behaviors, you know, and not realize that. And when I became vegan, it wasn't that I saw different things. It was that I saw the same things differently. I no longer looked at meat trucks as meat trucks. It was trucks of body parts driving down the street. I would go to the grocery store and I would see aisles of dead body parts. And it was such a profound shift in my perception. And I felt like, and this happens to a lot of people when they make that connection and become aware, I kind of wanted to shout it from the rooftops. And I figured like, well, it's just about awareness, you know, or maybe not awareness, but understanding if everybody knew what I know, the system would be shut down in no time, but nobody wanted to hear what I had to say. Nobody wanted to know what I know. And that's what really prompted me to want to understand like this psychology, what's going on? Why are people defending their right to stay in a box that's destroying the world and harming them. And it is hard to understand, but fortunately you lay it out pretty clearly here. Why we love dogs, eat pigs, and wear cows, an introduction to carnism. How much of this was related to based on derived from your thesis? A lot of it was. For my thesis, I interviewed vegans and vegetarians, and but primarily for my, my pre-doctoral work, I, I interviewed vegans and vegetarians about their experience going from having eaten animals to having stopped eating animals. And then I interviewed meat eaters, meat cutters, butchers, people who had raised and killed their own animals for food. And what I learned was that everybody had the very same sort of contradictory attitudes and behaviors of participants were very uncomfortable with the idea of harming animals unnecessarily, even through, you know, simply purchasing them to consume them. And yet at the same time, they actively engaged in this and they used, you know, they went through these mental gymnastics essentially in order to manage the inconsistencies that they were confronted with when we were having our conversations, when I was asking them the questions. And I'll, I'll give you an example or a couple of examples of these defense mechanisms that I've been referring to. So one of them, I mean, the, the name doesn't really matter, but it's de-individualization. So carnism conditions us to see farm animals as 
lacking in any individuality or personality of their own. So we learn to believe, for example, that a pig is a pig and all pigs are the same. You know, this is a distancing mechanism. It makes it easier for us to consume the products procured from their bodies, of course, or objectification is another example. We learn to think of and, of course, refer to farmed animals as objects, as you've just pointed out, where we talk about, you know, we we change the words that we use when we refer to the animals sometimes and certainly to their flesh. So, for example, most people would have a very different experience if they referred to the chicken on their plate as someone rather than something. Head of cattle. We could just say cows, but the term is, you know, 40 head of cattle or 1,000 head of cattle or whatever. And I guess that just distance it, makes it more objective. It makes it more of an abstraction. But when we talk about fish, you know, we still use the word fish, the actual word to refer to the animal and to their flesh. So it seems that the animals who we are more psychologically and emotionally distanced from, we don't need to use language as much to distance ourselves from the process. I was just thinking as you were speaking It occurred to me, if we had our meat in the shape of the animals, people don't want to open up and eat out of a skull the brain of a cow, but they'll eat it in some kind of sausage or whatever, right? Animal crackers. There is a non-intuitive approach. I mean, so kids are being trained to eat animals, even though there's no animal in there, probably. I'm just wondering what part that plays in it. I don't know. Is that part of the psychic numbing? I don't know. It's an interesting question that you ask and connection that you make. I don't know about the role of animal crackers, but you do point out something that I think is interesting and maybe worth discussing briefly, which is that for many people in the world today, we're more removed from the process of the production process of how animals become food. And therefore more sense that's one of the reasons that we're more sensitized you know where many people are very uncomfortable seeing meat that in any way resembles its original animal form this wasn't always the case and i hear this a lot okay melanie but what about not that long ago when people were all raising and killing their own animals you know what about and you know we have this whole movement you know this kind of quasi locavore movement to try to get back to you know, nature and you know this idea that vegans are overly sensitive urbanites and suburbanites who've just lost touch with the source of their food. And, you know, let's get back to that source. And it is true that people used to be much closer to the killing of the animals. This doesn't necessarily mean that people were naturally more comfortable with it. People were also much closer to the killing of other humans. They used to go to public executions. They used to watch the Roman games, the gladiators. People can learn to desensitize themselves when something is really normalized and violence is right up close and personal. It becomes increasingly possible to desensitize yourself to the suffering of others. And I think we're becoming more sensitized now. One reason is because we're not constantly going through this process of desensitization. It's not normal for us to witness the killing of animals day in and day out like it used to be. Another reason, I believe, is because for many people in the world today, they no longer believe that it's necessary 
to eat animals in order to survive or to thrive. And in fact, of course, the literature demonstrates the opposite is true. It's necessary to stop doing that. Amen. That's, right? That's one that's so obvious. It should be obvious. Well, yeah, part of it, I mean, it depends on where you live and where you are in the world, but many people are becoming aware of this reality. And in my book, I talk about the defense justification, you know, how we learn to justify eating animals. And I talk about how the way that we learn to justify eating animals is by learning to believe that the myths of meat, eggs, and dairy are the facts of meat, eggs, and dairy. We learn to believe in what I call the three ends of justification that, that eating animals is normal, natural, and necessary, which are, of course, justifications that have been used to support all sorts of violent practices from male dominance to heterosexual supremacy. But what's happening today is that the end of necessity is becoming increasingly destabilized. I believe that that is really the pillar of the ends. I mean, if you look at atrocities that have been committed historically, they were made possible because the populace was convinced that supporting the atrocity was necessary for the survival of the race or the nation, for example. Here, in this case, we're talking about the survival of the species. But now more and more people recognize that it's not necessary. You're not going to die if you stop eating animals. Actually, you're probably going to get a lot healthier. And so when a behavior becomes a choice, when it's no longer a necessity, it becomes a choice. And when a behavior becomes a choice, it takes on an ethical dimension it didn't have in quite the same way before. So more and more people are really grappling with this issue. And of course, it's easier and easier not to eat animals because plant-based eating or veganism is becoming increasingly normalized. And if people wish that taste for some reason, they can always go to the, what are the names of the Impossible Burger and the other one? You can have the taste and you can do it veganly. Yeah, veganly. <laughs> it's important to invent new words. So you just talked, Melanie, about the factory farm deplorable situation, which is where almost all of meat, dairy, and eggs in the United States comes from, which is easy to see it's abhorrent. That's why Peter Bermudez, uh, the publicist who connected me with you, he warned me that it might be hard on my stomach to read chapter three. Maybe reading a couple pages at a time might be as much as I could digest. In fact, I've been exposed to much of this long before, so it, it didn't come as a surprise to me. It's, it makes me sad. It makes me revolted, but it doesn't surprise me at all. So you talked about old-style farms. People are raising and killing their own pigs, cows, chickens. My father grew up on a dairy farm. They had pigs, chickens, everything. Yeah, he's used to all of that. There's also a different form, which is foraging lifestyle. And I noticed you referred to farmed animals versus the wild animals. That uh, might be fish, I suppose, but people kill deer around here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where I live. Actually, the deer hunting season in November is a holiday. A lot of kids disappear at that point from schools because they go with their families hunting season. How would it be helpful to think about hunting, foraging, use of animals versus having them on a farm? When we look at the psychology that underlies harming another individual, whether that individual is human or non-human, whether that individual is a so-called domesticated animal or a wild animal, 
we're still talking about the same kind of a mindset in order to carry out violence against somebody else, particularly when that violence is completely unnecessary, when you're doing so to satisfy your desires or your sense of power or your sense of enjoyment or entertainment, your taste buds, whatever it may be, you are disconnecting from your natural empathy for that other individual, you are exercising power over an individual, you're using your power to cause harm to somebody else, because you can, and because you want to, and because you've been conditioned to. This is the kind of thinking that, you know, and I don't mean to downplay the fact that tradition has a profound effect on us. Conditioning has a profound effect on us. People who are eating animals, people who are hunting animals, they're not people who are actively trying to do bad things in the world. They're people who are part of a system who have been taught to think and feel and behave in certain ways that they probably do not realize are completely counterproductive to a truly healthy society. You know, I want to say healthy, I should say compassionate society. In order to shoot somebody unnecessarily, whether that person is human or non-human or were a farmed animal or a wild animal, you really need to disconnect for your empathy for that other individual. All animals have lives that matter to them. Again, it's very hard to appreciate this as long as we're operating within the carnistic box. So we can step back and think about how comfortable people might feel if they thought of golden retrievers being chased and hunted down. You know, most people would be, at least in this part of the world, deeply offended by that and opposed, not because golden retrievers are that different from other animals, but because our perceptions of golden retrievers are different. We recognize them as individuals who have lives that matter to them and feelings and the ability to feel pleasure and pain. And one of the things that you spell out in why we love dogs, eat pigs, and wear cows is some of the attributes of pigs and cows and other animals that we normally pretend are not there. As a matter of fact, when I was a Peace Corps volunteer, Ben was another Peace Corps volunteer, and he was in charge with teaching people to use animal traction, using cows to pull or steers, whatever, to pull plows, etc., because that hadn't happened in West Africa. So he had a dog that was a pet, lived in his house, and he had a pig, which was a pet, lived in his house, and they slept together like brother and sister, the cow and the pig. So it becomes very obvious when you see a pig in that role that a pig is not terribly different. You mentioned some characteristics that people attribute, for instance, to pigs or cows or so on. When I was 10 years old at my uncle's farm at that point, we would ride pigs. We'd get in there and and ride (laughs) them and play this. We did with calves too. So they became much more individual. They became like pets. It didn't lead me to become vegetarian yet because I think that psychic defense, pork versus pig, beef versus cow, was still operative for me. You also mentioned something called PSS, porcine stress syndrome, and you talk about PTSD. Spell that out because I don't think people have any idea, and if they did, they'd have to think twice. So porcine stress syndrome, or well, actually you had asked me about the way that we think of pigs and most people, if you ask them to describe a pig, they'll describe pigs as dirty, lazy, greedy, fat, you know, they'll use all of these terms that are 
obviously problematic and that are actually not appropriate. But this is what they've learned to think of pigs. Pigs are actually not dirty. They roll in mud to keep themselves cool. They don't sweat. You know, some people will say sweat like a pig. Pigs don't have sweat glands. Um, <laughs> you know, pigs are as intelligent as three-year-old human children. Pigs are highly sensitive individuals. And as you point out, some people keep them as pets, you know, like they might keep dogs as pets. But it's much easier to participate in harm toward a group of individuals if we actually believe that they are so, you know, essentially morally inferior. If we were to really recognize the sentience and sensitivity of these individuals, it would be much more difficult to support harm towards them. And, you know, to that end, as you pointed out, PSS stands for porcine stress syndrome. It's very much like PTSD, except that it affects pigs and pigs in intensive confinement. Pigs under stress can develop these symptoms where they'll actually engage in self-harming behaviors. You know, you may have heard of people who have PTSD or have a strong stress reaction and are cutting themselves, for example. This is what pigs do. They're so intensely stressed out that they will actually bite their tails off. They will mutilate their own bodies. They'll develop behaviors also like, you know, repetitive actions, repetitive behaviors, pacing behaviors. And what I think is really important about this is it really helps us to see, you know, for people who are not making that connection, that these are beings, you know, these are sentient beings who are conscious individuals who are not just sentient and conscious, but who are sensitive individuals whose sensitivities, you know, who are sensitive individuals under tremendous stress and just profound suffering. It's really striking. Folks, we are speaking with Melanie Joy. She is author of Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows, An Introduction to Carnism. She's also the author of a number of other books, including Getting Relationship Right, very important things that for us to continue to live with and learn about. This is Spirit in Action. NorthernSpiritRadio.org is my website. You may be hearing us via some of the 40-plus stations that carry our program nationwide, or perhaps you're listening directly via NorthernSpiritRadio.org or one of the places where our podcast is carried. In any case, please remember to come to our site, post comments, give us feedback. Two-way communication is the best kind of communication. Will you validate that, Melanie? I will validate that two-way communication. It's dynamic communication. <laughs> also on our site, you can donate to support this full-time work. We don't depend on government or on corporations for money. We figure the listeners know what they need and want and that they'll come here and support us to do that. So NordenSpiritRadio.org. Also support the community radio stations that carry this kind of program. And please, it's such an important thing to do. Alternative information is so important because, as Melanie has already mentioned, Carnism is an ideology which controls society, and many things in society are ordered to make sure that people support the economic and power needs of the system. So, for instance, Melanie, I think you mentioned that a number of slaughterhouses have gone to great lengths to prevent anybody from getting in the footage out of what actually happens there. Our ignorance is supported by the fact that companies, corporations, the owners make sure that we can't see the truth. 
Yes, absolutely. And it's very difficult to get any footage. It's very difficult to get any information. The Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act makes it illegal to engage in activity that would interfere with quote unquote animal enterprise, which includes, of course, industries that use animals that profit off of using animals. So it is extremely dangerous. And and this also tells us something, you know, it tells us this wouldn't be necessary if people didn't really care. That is good news because raising awareness is so fundamental to helping to transform this system. I think it's really vital that people become aware not only about the consequences of animal agribusinesses, but also about carnism, which is a system that enables these businesses to, you know, the industry, carnistic industry to stay intact in the first place. It's naming carnism really helps us to see it more clearly. It helps us to step out of the system, to really reconnect with what we authentically think and feel rather than what we've been conditioned to think and feel. Once you identify and really understand the defenses and how they maintain themselves, they lose a lot of power. You know, imagine trying to talk about sexual harassment or women's rights without ever having identified patriarchy. That would be a very difficult conversation to have. I think it's impossible to have a truly objective conversation about eating animals as long as we're operating from within the very mindset that conditions us to believe that eating animals is legitimate and appropriate. I think of something when my son was about three years old, we're going for a walk. And as we'd go along on the sidewalk, he was being very careful not to step on ants. Of course, he'd been raised as vegetarian. He's 35 in another week or so, and he's a lifelong vegetarian. So he's had an extra sensitivity, I think, maybe to animals. There are people like the Jains in India who carry that concern, the empathy, the connection, the karma related to animals all the way down to insects. And mind you, in Togo, where I was, at one point we were visiting Basar, which is halfway up country, and there were some street lights, and it was the time of the flying termites. They would swarm around these lights, and there were kids underneath there grabbing handfuls of termites, throwing them into water, the wings fall off, and then you can eat the termites. And a kid comes up to us and tells us, have you ever tried them? Oh, they're so delicious. They're wonderful. I've got empathy for dogs and for pigs and cows and chickens and on down the way. I've lost it when I get to mosquitoes. (laughs) Is there a, a line where it would be good not to have empathy? I mean, empathy as I'm not sure as the highest value, it's the best idea, but talk to me about empathy and where we should have compassion or should not. People often ask me where I draw my line around my circle of compassion and say, Melanie, well, you know, where do you draw your line? You're a vegan and you're active in all these anti-oppression efforts. And I always say, it's not where I draw my line that matters to me. It's how I relate to my line. Am I committed to learning? and growing and reflecting on the impact of my choices, you know, and I think for all of us, as long as we maintain a commitment to growing our awareness and to asking ourselves with each of our actions, you know, can I do less harm? How can I do less harm? I think then we're going in the right direction. 
We've inherited a messy world. We've been born into a profoundly relationally dysfunctional world. It's a mess. So, you know, we really also have to be aware that we will need to make choices in this world that are not the ideal choices we would make in a world that's less of a mess or in an ideal world. So I talk to vegans who are stressed out because they have to feed their rescued cats meat because their rescued cats are sick and can't eat vegan cat food. You wouldn't have to make that choice in a different world. We have to live with a certain amount of contradictions. And I think we can always ask ourselves, can I draw my line around my circle of compassion and pencil, you know, so I can continually reflect and ask myself, how do I feel? There's an insect out there. I don't have to step on them. Can I do less harm with this behavior, with this choice? Doing less harm is a line that makes sense to me. And one of the things that became clear for me, given the society we live in, it makes sense to be able to not eat meat. I don't think it makes sense for the Inuit people living in a place where they don't have plants as an option so much of the year. So I think that there are times it makes sense to, I really love your expression, you know, the circle it in pencil, because there may be growing knowledge and descending knowledge. One thing that you talk about is compassionate carnism, humanely raised meat. And you just say, there you have a judgment. You said it's irrational. Could you spell that out? Yeah. And I I don't think I would call that a judgment. It would be an assessment. And the reason I say that is because I think there's an inconsistency. There is an irrational inconsistency in attitudes and behaviors that most people just simply don't recognize for what it is. So this sort of growing support for what's called humane meat, eggs, and dairy is on one hand, it's a good sign. You know, it's a good sign because it wouldn't exist if enough people hadn't woken up and said, I want to vote with my dollar and I don't want to be a part of this problem anymore. And nevertheless, of course, carnistic industry is going to push back and find a way to get people to continue eating animals when they're becoming increasingly uncomfortable with the idea of eating animals. And hence this idea of quote unquote, humane animal products or carnistic products to understand the irrationality here. Again, we need to kind of step outside the carnistic box. So Again, if you imagine that most of us, let me say, most of us would consider it cruel to slaughter a happy, healthy golden retriever just because people like the way her thighs taste. Yet when the exact same thing is done to individuals of other species, we're expected to call it humane. It doesn't make rational sense because there is this inconsistency. And in some ways, slaughtering the happy animal is even worse because that animal had a life they wanted to continue living and probably left friendships and connections behind with others who would then grieve the loss of this individual. So This is what I call compassionate carnism. It's a form of carnism that is expected to be perceived as compassionate when in fact it's, it's, it really is very much a contradiction in terms. I always try and wrestle with these ideas and self-analyze so I can minimize the harm I do on this earth. And one thing that I feel terribly conflicted by is when our dog Cole was old and he was suffering quite badly freaking out because he couldn't walk anymore and howling in the middle of the night. We went down and slept by him to calm him. But we knew at that point it was the euphemism is used to put him to sleep. It's a mercy killing. 
And I feel okay about that. But what I haven't understood yet is why we don't do mercy killing for people. If it's really merciful, then why are we doing it differently in those two cases? I don't have the answer, but you're a psychologist. You've taught at Harvard for years. You've written all kinds of books about this. You have to have the answer. That's why I'm just your interviewer. (laughs) No pressure. Well, first of all, I did not teach at Harvard. I studied there. but um, Is that where you got your PhD from? My master's. And then I did my PhD after that. I mean, it's a great question. I don't have the answer. I think it's it's a philosophical question. It's also a psychological question. I think a lot of it has to do with religion, with religious ideas about life and death and power over life and death. And some of it has to do with the individuals who are left behind and who are struggling and grappling with the loss of a loved one they may not be ready to say goodbye to yet. I think it's a very complex situation. There are places in the world where it is legal to end life, you know, physician assisted suicide. So it's an ongoing question and it's, it's got a lot, of, a lot of components. Another thing that came to mind as I was reading your book, and again, folks, the book by Melanie Joy is Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows, an Introduction to Carnism. And if you want to check out more about this, follow the link from org to carnism. Beyond Carnism is organization she founded. When I was reading the book, one of the things that came to mind, and I'm thinking about empathy and connection across species, I thought of the Egyptian plover, if you know which bird I'm referring to. That's the bird that cleans the teeth of crocodiles. So you'll see pictures of this bird in the mouth of crocodiles, which for most of us, our mind explodes. Cross-species compassion and empathy does exist widely. Have you run into any particular cases that opened your understanding of our connection between people, animals, food, and so on? Well, you know, what's interesting is that we know that empathy in many ways is really our natural state in that we are humans and some other animals, to our knowledge, are are hardwired to feel empathy. We have mirror neurons. You know, these are neurons in our brains that are activated in the same parts of our brains. We witness somebody having an experience, the same parts of our brains are activated as would be activated if we were having that experience ourselves. So if you see somebody with a spider crawling up their leg, and then you feel the hair go up in the back of your neck, or you get goosebumps, right? Those mirror neurons are activating the same response that would be activated in you if the spider were actually crawling on you. So humans and some other animals are in fact hardwired to empathize. And this shows up in in all different ways. And do a quick Google search of animals, you know, helping each other, rescuing each other. (laughs) There's some great videos out there. Some really funny videos out there and interesting videos out there. And I don't mean to say that there isn't a part of us that also can be and is violent. You know, when we are triggered, when our fight, flight or freeze response is activated, because we experience ourselves as being under threat, whether it's a physical threat or a psychological threat, whether it's an actual threat or a perceived threat, we go into defense mode and this disconnects us from our empathy. So we have the capacity, obviously, to carry out tremendous amounts of violence. And underneath that, we also have the capacity and not only the capacity, but the natural tendency to feel an empathic connection with others. And when we feel that connection, we are much less likely to want to do harm to them. I also want to say that there are people who don't have 
a huge amount of natural empathy and that's just normal and that's okay. People are wired in different ways and we all fall in different places on the empathy scale. You can still be a part of the solution without feeling that deep empathic sense of connection with others simply by knowing, you know, by raising your own awareness and by being aware of the issue and and making decisions that you believe are in alignment with your own values. I really like your normal, natural, necessary points about what buttresses carnism and dysfunctional ways of being. I agree with what you just said. And I would say that a very important part of human behavior comes from the fact that it was normal, natural, and necessary for people to self-protect by clans. But as we learn to identify and have empathy in larger and larger circles, it was no longer necessary to say, my clan is only the helps meet family or the, the joy family. It's, it's bigger than that. About 10 years ago, I interviewed someone who authors of a book where they were rating behaviors uh, based on liberal conservative. And so the question is, how do you rate liberal conservative? And they said, it's by how big the circle of we that you draw is. So is it just the people in my town? It's all the Green Bay Packers supporters. Is it people from the U.S.? Is it white males? Whatever, you can draw your circle any which way. That the larger your circle you draw of we, the more liberal you are. So on that index, do you reach 100% yet? Or maybe mosquitoes aren't included. (laughs) That's interesting. I had never heard that before, but that's very interesting. I mean, and as I said, in answer to your question, as awareness grows, so does often one circle of compassion. There's a book out, a relatively new book out. It's been a New York Times bestseller by the animal behaviorist, Jonathan Balcom. It's a very interesting book and it's a great read. If you're wanting to learn more about this issue, it's called What a Fly Knows. And it's about the inner lives of flies. It's fascinating. It would be very hard for a lot of people to read a book like that and not feel more empathy toward flies. So as we learn more as a species, I think we're naturally going to be extending our circle of compassion. And as the philosopher Tom Regan once said, when he was asked about a certain species, I think it was oysters. Anyway, I don't remember what the species was. And and there was some debate about, you know, do they have pain receptors? Do they have, you know, sentient? He said, well, we don't know, but when the stakes are so high, better to err on the side of caution. One more thing I want to mention about the book and and about the analysis you do in the book, Melanie. A very big part of it is about the damage, the injury, the murder that we do to animals. But you also point out, and this is not insignificant for many people, because part of what's good for us is should be on top shelf. And you point out that eating animals as food has its very downside for our health and well-being. Could you explain a little bit about that? I'm sure there's a a really a growing body of literature today. There's a tremendous body of literature demonstrating that the consumption of animal products, uh, carnistic products is, you know, has been linked with some of the most serious diseases in the Western world. You know, everything from heart disease to certain types of cancer, type two diabetes, obesity. We know that intensive animal agriculture, like factory farms and wet markets are key drivers of pandemics. 
We also know that animal agriculture is a key driver of climate change and an increasingly toxifying, toxified environment that humans live on. I could go on and on about this, but there are many, many ways in which carnism harms humans. It doesn't just harm non-humans. I mean, and the good news is that working to transform carnism does not only help other animals and the planet, it also helps us. And, you know, as you pointed out, when you stop eating animals, you know, you, you stop having to go through these mental gymnastics, essentially, and it frees up a tremendous amount of psychological energy. And there's a tremendous relief of not having to work to remain unaware of what's right in front of you. So veganism is not, obviously, it's not the solution to all the world's problems, but I believe that no solution will be complete without this. You know, as I said earlier, you know, the same mentality that drives us to harm other animals drives us to harm other humans. So at the end of the day, it's not enough to just try to end harm to one particular group, you know, a certain group of humans or all humans or whatever it may be, we really have to change the way that we relate. And that means changing the way we think about and treat other beings, human and non-human alike, and of course, ourselves. And of course, ourselves. And folks, there's much more you can learn from Melanie Joy by reading her book. She's got some six of them out so far. Getting relationship right is a very important one. What we've been talking about today is why we love dogs, eat pigs, and wear cows, an introduction to carnism. There's more coming. A place to track her down is at carnism.org. This has been the 10th anniversary edition of the book, Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, Wear Cows, because it came out 10 years ago, and the world has changed. Has it changed for the good, Melanie, since then? I certainly think veganism, vegetarianism, veganism have increased. There's a sensitivity to people who were not defined previously as people, including dogs. <laughs> have you seen things go in the right direction? Absolutely. I, I've traveled to about 50 countries, maybe over 50 countries now and six continents talking about this issue. And without exception, I have heard everywhere, whether it's Kuwait or Taiwan or South Africa, veganism, support for veganism, awareness of veganism is really just growing. It's just mushrooming. And I've seen this consistently. And, you know, more and more people are also recognizing that you don't have to be fully vegan right away to be a part of the solution. I always encourage people to try to be as vegan as possible, you know, to move along that spectrum of carnism toward veganism, try to be as vegan as possible, make each meal as vegan as you can and be a vegan ally. And what that means is be an ally in the transformation of carnism. Even if you're not fully vegan yourself, use your influence, use your power, use your words, whatever it may be to help this cause, which really needs all the help that it can get, you know, spread the word, help raise awareness, support organizations, you know, that are doing important work, support people in your life who are choosing not to eat animals, support initiatives to help people move toward plant-based, whatever you can do. You are such a force for good. You're such a well-spoken, insightful, and talented force for good. I thank you so much, Melanie, for doing this work. And of course, not just animals. You're bringing love, compassion, empathy to society and to the world. And that is something that deserves all of our support. Thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you. And thank you for all that you're doing to spread the same kind of attitudes and change. I really, really appreciate it. And it's been great talking to you again.
Yes. And I hope I don't have to wait another two years until I get to speak to you again. And when you want to track down Melanie Joy, a good place to find a lot of her materials is carnism.org. The link's on northernspiritradio.org. See you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo of our